The passage for tonight is Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruits of the ground, and Abel brought to the and Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is couching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to Abel his brother, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day away from the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will slay me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who came upon him should kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. You know, as admirable as it is to instruct boys and girls in the narratives of our scripture, to educate the youngsters in the tenets of our holy book, to tell Bible stories to children, the actual stories themselves can make it very difficult. Because, you know, a lot of these stories are not that suitable for children or maybe not that comprehensible to kids, or, I hate to say it, a lot of the stories in the Bible seem to give kids the wrong message. I mean, kind of a lot of Bible stories teach ideas about God and people and siblings, for example, that we would not want them to think or believe or emulate. 
But what are a bunch of zealous Protestant literalists to do? It's the Bible. And even if you don't like it, even if it seems harmful, you still have to teach it to your kids. So um, is the commitment of... So this commitment here is forcing these Christian educators to face this challenging task of making these stories that theologians, biblical scholars, and preachers find difficult, comprehensible to six-year-olds. Now, in surveying the literature, it seems that a few basic methods are used to do this. You tell the story in the kid's language. Use words that are on their level. Or to put it another way, um, talk down to them in condescending tone using simplistic patronizing words. Such as, the devil is just one big old meanie. And God was very, very sad that the naughty Pharaoh made him have to kill all the firstborn Egyptian children. Or, have you ever been really, really mad at your sister or brother? Well, so is Cain. <laughs> Another common technique is to relate the Bible stories to something in the child's everyday life, which, given the relatively limited life experience of your average six-year-old, leads to a lot of comparisons between God and mom and dad. Bobby's father told him not to play ball in the living room, but he disobeyed him and broke his mother's favorite vase. He tried to hide the broken pieces, but his father found out, and Bobby's father was very angry and had to punish his disobedience, just like God did with Adam and Eve. And then there's the technique of putting the story in the mouths of fun and funny characters, like animals or vegetables or old people. So you get like a smiling camel with a bow tie saying, so remember, kids, if you don't treat the thirsty, the hungry, and the naked the way you would treat Jesus on earth, he'll tell God he's never, ever seen you before when you get to heaven. And take it from Humpy, that won't be any fun. Which is not only existentially terrifying, but also leaves the children left picturing Jesus naked. Whatever you do, today's story from the Bible is going to be difficult to make it fun and funny with a clear moral message for the youngsters. These 16 verses in the fourth chapter of Genesis, they're kind of horrifying to me. I mean, I don't find anything in this story like a God that I would want to know. I mean, I can't find any way like how this would make sense to me. This is, I don't, I'm not so upset that they begin with humanity, at the beginning of our humanity's creation, there's a narrative about humans acting violently to other humans. I mean, that happens all the time. It makes sense that it's there. I mean, humans acting violently against each other is the greatest tragedy of our species. 
But the thing that is horrifying to me really is the picture it paints of God. The plain meaning of this text brings up a lot of questions. I mean, this can take a lot of explaining or filling in the gaps for this make, to make sense to me or to a kid. Which brings me to another popular technique used to make Bible stories understandable for children, adding stuff to the Bible. I mean, if something doesn't quite come out the way we want to, you just add stuff to the story until it works. Like last week's Bible story about Adam and Eve in the garden, and remember in the picture book, Jesus shows up and forgives their sins at the end. It's that kind of a thing. Now, I read a lot of children's Bible story versions of Cain and Abel, and um, one that I really liked was from this site that I think maybe is for uh, homeschooling kids. It was called DLTK's Bible Stories for Children. Um, now, in the story, um, which was written by Leanne Gunther, which I thought was, was pretty good. She uh, added some things to make it comprehensible. And then at the end, she also included some, well, she also included some introductory notes for the adults teaching the stories. Um, and then a couple lessons you could draw from this story of Cain and Abel with the children. And then um, at the end, some really nice Cain and Abel-related crafts, activities, and coloring pages. In her introductory comment, Leanne Gunther says, this can be a difficult story to go over with children. In Ms. Gunther's version, the story begins with a question, which I always like. She writes, sometimes when we read the Bible, we wonder why God cared about some things more than he cared about others. The story of Cain and Abel is one of those stories for some people. But I like it. She's pretty straightforward. She's respecting the intelligence of her readers. And uh, she continues, A long time ago, just after Cain, um, Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden, they were very sad about disobeying God. They asked God how they could show him how sorry they were. God told them that they could show him how they felt by sacrificing a lamb, which they did. After a while, Adam and Eve had two sons. The first was called Cain, and the second was Abel. Cain was a farmer. He grew vegetables and grains. And Abel was a shepherd who looked after the family's herds. Cain and Abel are like most siblings. They didn't always get along. But they were brothers and loved each other in spite of their occasional fights. Now, so when this time of sacrifice comes along, uh, Abel is just so happy to bring God to this, the best part of his flock, the firstborn of his flock, and to cut out all the meaty parts and place them on the altar before God. Now Cain, in her story, thinks this is a waste of good meat. He reasons, you know, we need this lamb more than God does. He says, you know, I've had a really great year with my crops. I, I, we have some leftover. Why don't I just give God, instead of meat, some of my... Uh, grain. He settles on straw. So he puts up on the altar uh, some straw as his sacrifice to God. Well, God instantly consumes that meat in a big fire until it's all gone. But Cain's sacrifice just smolders a little bit, not even a flame. 
Now, Cain thinks this can only mean one thing. God likes Abel better than him. Cain is jealous, really jealous. And he doesn't even take the time to take the responsibility to realize that it was his decision to sacrifice straw that caused the difference in God's response to their sacrifices. No, instead he gets angry at his brother, and he asks his brother to go on a walk. In all these children's stories, they all use the invited him to go on a walk thing. So he invites him to go on a walk, where he strikes him to the ground and kills him. And, well, you know how the rest of the story goes. Now, so by adding the part about God commanding Adam and Eve to sacrifice a lamb, God is off the hook. God isn't random when he regards Abel's sacrifice and disregards Cain's. Furthermore, she concludes this lesson. Did God care whether he got meat or straw? Of course not. God didn't care about that. What God really cared about was their intent, their thoughts, their feelings, their efforts. What was in their hearts? God cared about what was inside them. And Abel was happy to give God what God asked for. And he wanted God to have the best. Cain, he didn't really mean it. He didn't want to give meat to God. He wanted it for himself. He didn't give God his best. His thoughts, his feelings, his efforts were not right. That is why God had to punish him. A sacrifice is, a, is giving up something you really want to keep for yourself, something important to you, something you love. And then there was this cool craft. You print out this template picture of Abel, smiling with a little lamb at his feet, and you take an empty toilet paper tube and glue it around it. And then you got a nice little Abel doll. And then you print out the template of Cain. He's smiling, like Abel was. He's wearing a straw hat and overalls like a farmer. And he's holding a pitchfork. Now you glue that around an empty toilet paper roll. And you have a little Cain doll. Now I wanted to have the complete experience. So after I read the story, I did the craft. I made the Abel doll. And I made the Cain doll. And I had them both sitting on my desk in front of me. And then I did what I think probably every kid who did this did. I took the uh, cane doll and stabbed with its pitchfork the Abel doll until the tube was collapsed. Another version of the story I thought was pretty interesting is from this animated series called The Holy Tales. The series is hosted by uh, Tubby the Worm and all of Tubby's worm friends. It starts with Tubby the Worm introducing himself. He's sitting on a book with a beach umbrella stuck into it. And there's a hole in the book and then a pile of something next to the hole. And he says, hi, I'm Tubby the Worm. And me and my friends, we live in the library. And I love to eat books. Apparently the hole in the book was and the pile next to it is a result of Tubby's love for eating books. Now I'm trying to figure out the symbology here. So the worms, okay, bookworm, right? I get that. And of course a bookworm 
would live in a library, but why does Tubby like eating books? He loves eating books. Shouldn't we, as the intended hearers of this story, be alarmed that this seemingly charismatic worm is eating the books? This is before the story has even started. Tubby lives in a library, and presumably all his fr worm friends do as well. Do they all love eating books too? I mean, will they destroy the whole library by the time this series gets to Revelation? And why is he so emphatic about it? I mean, really, I love eating books, exclamation point. Like, no shame, no shame at all. He's not embarrassed, he's just right out there. I love eating books. He's not trying to hide it. Is it a comment on the death of the printed word? perhaps, the negation of the book as object? Or is it like Tubby is consuming the book? You know, he's ingesting the stories, making it part of his very being. But moving on. Tubby introduces us to Grand Old Holy, which is an old worm sitting in a rocking chair wearing some kind of hat. I assume it's a, like a grandmother worm, although it's hard to tell gender with worms. And uh, old Holy from a rocking chair tells Tubby and his gathered friends and us as well this story. Um, and Old Holy tells it pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward, um, which I like. She doesn't smooth over anything. She does not add anything to give God sort of a way out. As a matter of fact, she says that both Cain and Abel gave their best to God. Both Cain and Abel did their best for God. Both Cain and Abel's hearts were in this right place. They both gave their best. God just didn't like Cain's. As a matter of fact, in Old Holy Worm story, um, God doesn't even take Cain's sacrifice. Cain didn't do anything wrong. His thoughts, his feelings, his effort was in the right place. God just didn't want it. So, you know, he goes and he kills Abel. And God asks, where is your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. And God said, you're lying. I can never forgive you. And then she smiles and says, and now it's question time. If you've all been paying attention, you'll know the answer. I have one question for you. What did Cain and Abel give God? And all the little worms yell in unison, their best. And then it's back to Tubby. If you want to hear more Bible story, kids, sign up here. 
I mean, it's straightforward. It's just it's what's in the text. I mean, I kind of like that. You know, almost all the other versions of the story I read, almost all of them came down with Cain didn't really mean it in his heart to explain God's actions. And furthermore, sort of the implication that that kind of attitude is what eventually makes you murder your brother. What eventually leads you to sin, to murder. Cain is guilty here. And even when you read this text, the straight plain meaning of the text is that, well, if you just read this straight across this text, it brings up a lot of questions about everybody involved. Questions like, even in her introduction, Leanne Gunther says that her daughter, at the end of hearing the story, asked her, Mom, why did God like shepherds more than farmers? And then she says, I think you missed the point, honey. And then there's a smiley face. But I think that's a pretty good question myself. It's right in there. Why did God like shepherds more than farmers? Why does God want meat? Why does God want meat? I don't understand. I mean, here's the thing, too. Like, poor Cain, you know? Like, God is the one, actually, that taught them how to kill. When God, if God asked for this sacrifice... They weren't just naturally doing that. God had to tell them, what is a sacrifice? Here's what you do. You're going to have to get this. You're going to have to. I mean, poor Cain, he's a pacifist vegetarian until God rejects him. He's not killing anybody, but he so wants to please God, right? You know, if sacrifice is giving something that you want for yourself, something that you highly value something that you love? I think he just thought of his brother. If God loved that sacrifice so much, killing that animal that his brother didn't give it to him, he thought, okay, I can be like that. He sacrificed what he loved. I mean, this is where I can go with these questions. It's kind of crazy. But you know what? You see, here's the thing. God is not like our parents from the 50s. God is not teaching us moral lessons about trying harder, about having our hearts in the right place, about having our thoughts pure. No, God is not fully knowable. God is mysterious. God is dangerous. God is the creator of the universe God is love itself. This is how ra the rabbis saw God. And in the Midrash, they have the same instinct as Leanne Gunther did to fill in the gaps. Where these gaps in the stories, the rabbis write, add things, 
ask questions, posit possibilities or scenarios. The rabbis in the Midrash explore these questions in the gaps and exploring these questions in the gaps, they explore some basic questions about human nature. And in this text, all the rabbis are writing about what is guilt? What is guilt? When we must start with the worst possible thing that can humans could do right at the very beginning, and that is to kill each other, to take each other's lives. How is this possible? And who is responsible? Who is guilty in this story? And what determines that guilt? Well, one rabbi writing says that uh, they go off on this gap in the text. Um, and when they were in the field, the gap between so Cain and Abel went to the field, and when they were in the field, he struck him down and killed his brother. The rabbis want to know what happened in between there. Clearly, something did. Clearly, were they talking about something or what was discussed? How is it that they just go out to this and he goes and he commits the first person murder somebody? What happened? One rabbi writes, says that when they went out in the field, Cain and Abel, they decided to divide the world in half. And Abel said that he would take everything on the ground. And that meant that Cain got everything that was not connected to the ground that moved. And then so Abel demanded, get off my ground, fly up into the air, and don't touch my ground. And Cain said, remove your clothes and put down that crook because all that's movable is mine. And this led to a great argument, an argument that was unsolvable, until finally Cain lost control and murdered his brother. Other rabbis write, they claim that, uh, no, this was all about this argument, this came to this because it was an issue of a woman. Because... Uh, certain traditions, rabbis, say that every man at the beginning is born with a corresponding woman. So when Cain was born, he had a mere woman, just like Adam had Eve. When the earth first people were born, they had a corresponding woman, and so they could um, mate and procreate and fill the earth. And But so Cain was born first and had his corresponding woman, and then Abel was born, but when Abel was born, there were two corresponding women. So he had more. He had more possibility. He could fill up the land more. And Cain said, look, I'm the firstborn. My right is to have two-thirds of everything. You can't have more. I get that other woman of yours. And they fight over this woman, and Cain kills his brother and takes his women. Now, there's another uh, midrash here filling in this gap. The rabbis write, uh, tell this parable. It's the parable of the thief and the gatekeeper. A thief sneaks in to the home at night and steals everything 
and sneaks out without the gatekeeper seeing him. The next morning, the gatekeeper knows that everything is gone and then sees the thief and said, how come you stole everything from, from me last night? You should be punished. And he said, why should I be punished? I'm a thief. I did my job. You're a gatekeeper. You didn't do yours. The fault is clearly yours. And then the rabbis say that when God says to Cain, where is your brother? And Cain answers, am I my brother's keeper? Really, the I in there is a rarely used Hebrew word that is the same word that is used when God says, I am the Lord your God. So that I is really a title for God, a name of God. So really what Cain is saying to God, when God says, where is your brother? He's saying, is the Lord not my brother's keeper? Are you not my brother's keeper? If you're the creator of all things, isn't it to you to protect my brother from violence? Isn't it to you to not let violence enter into our world? How come there is violence? Cain speaks for all of us. He speaks for the rabbis. He speaks for all of us when he asks God the question, why is there evil in the world? Why is there violence? Why do you not protect people from the violent acts of other people? In the Christian tradition, we gather around the story of God in Christ. Taking Abel's place as the victim of humanity's violence. And through the resurrection, undoing Cain's violence, radically erasing humanity's guilt, introduced by humanity's original violence, freeing all to live without guilt and shame, freeing us to let go of our guilt and shame and to move forward in love, to live in the peace of God.